Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, please. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 18. You'll find that on page 1507 in that book rack Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 8. So we're in a narrative section in, gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew, and the narrative sections talk about the works of Jesus. And throughout this section, we've observed Jesus authenticating his messiahship or his kingship by healings and miracles. And here in the midst of authenticating his claims, today we come to a little short section where we meet two individuals who want to join Jesus' band of followers, And Jesus responds to them in a way that's somewhat uh, surprising to me. Uh, It would appear from the reading of the text that Jesus isn't all that thrilled with them coming along. It's like he's seen through what they're saying to them. And I want to suggest to you today that here Jesus is still authenticating his Messiahship, but in a way perhaps that we didn't expect. Today we're going to see very clearly what it means to be a follower of Jesus, And this should bring all of us to the edges of our seats because I think most of us assume this morning, if not all of us, that we are followers of Jesus. But Jesus is going to say some things today that might cause us to wonder or think or perhaps discern more accurately whether or not we are truly followers following him. So let's read the text, beginning in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowds around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Now, does that sound like Jesus? Well, it is. It is Jesus. And we need to understand this morning why it appears that Jesus is saying, whoa, hold, not so fast. Not so fast. Now, in my Bible, maybe your Bible too, has a little heading over this paragraph that says, the cost of following Jesus. Any of your Bibles show that this morning? Well, I want to point out to you that that little heading there is not in the original text. The headings that we have over paragraphs in the New Testament and throughout the Bible are given to us by editors who are helping us to see sections and general meaning of of various texts, or perhaps even helping us find places where we're looking for them. But this whole question of cost comes in because I think some of us are thinking, well, wait a minute, the cost of following Jesus, isn't the gospel a free gift of God? I mean, what's all this about cost? I mean, I thought my salvation didn't cost me anything. How many of you believe that this morning? Your salvation cost you nothing. Okay, I hope all our hands would go up. That's not a trick question. <laughs> our salvation didn't cost us anything. Well, why is this labeled the cost of following Jesus? I think the reality of what's going on here, if I could just sum it up really quickly, is it seems that while we might be clear on the gift of the gospel and the gift of salvation, we're anything but clear on what it costs to really follow Jesus. And make no mistake, Jesus wants it to be clear in all of our minds what it really means to follow him. You know, my wife and I sometimes laugh at the television when a commercial comes on, and you've seen these commercials, all the pharmaceuticals that are trying to sell us things. 
And, you know, they'll say, this is the miracle, this is the magic potion for whatever the ailment that you have or whatever condition you have. And it takes about 10 seconds to describe that. And then there's like a minute of all the side effects and things that might happen to you if you take this. And we look at each other and say, I think I'll take my chances on not having that drug because I don't want to go through all that stuff. But see, legal, uh, in a legal sense, they have to say all the things that could happen. Or if you're listening to a financial commercial uh, on the radio, have, are you amazed with how people can come on right after the little blurb, the little splash, uh, inviting you into whatever that is, whether it's a car they're selling or a house mortgage, you know, a, a lender or something like that. And then there's like this rattling off of in like 10 seconds what would take most of us about three minutes to say. That's called the small or the fine print. Uh, from a legal standpoint, companies and owners of companies are, are bound to tell people what's really up with this. So are what we're finding here in the words of Jesus sort of the fine print? Well, actually what I would tell you is that actually it's not fine print at all. It's giant print. The problem is in our culture, in modern Christianity, we have shrunk down the message of the real gospel in what it means to follow Jesus into what we would call fine print. We want the gospel to be so attractive, we don't tell anybody what it really means to follow Jesus. But you'll never find that with Jesus. Jesus is crystal clear in what it means to follow him. So maybe if I've got your attention, you might consider along with me this morning three clarifying questions when it comes to whether we've calculated the cost. I want you to assess, as I assess my life today, in three simple clarifying questions as to whether or not we get it, whether or not we have really counted the cost, whether or not we see this as the bold print of the gospel or the fine print that we really don't know much about. The first assessment includes the question of who we follow, who we follow. Now, verse 18, interesting, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, verse 18. I think it's interesting that uh, here, uh, arguable, is Matthew's reference to the crowd in such a way that we would think of Jesus um, wanting to stick with the crowds, but Matthew points out that Jesus wants to leave the crowds. It's a little counterintuitive to see Jesus, when he sees the crowds, to turn the other way. Now, some suppose that the reason why Jesus wanted to leave the crowd is because he was tired and needed rest. In fact, if you look to the next section, we'll be in next week, we know that that's the case. Jesus did get into a boat with his disciples to cross the lake, and he was fast asleep within minutes, apparently, because the disciples had to wake him up in the midst of a storm. We'll look at that next week. It's a fantastic text. Was it that Jesus was just tired and wanted to get away from the crowd? Like sometimes we feel, have you ever been around so many people that all you, can, all you want to do is just get away and get to a little quiet place? And maybe some suggest that this is what Jesus had in mind. He just wanted to get away from the crowd. Too much ministry, too much busyness that day. Well, I don't really think that's the issue. The text really doesn't tell us why Jesus wanted to get away from the crowd, but I think we could surmise from what's going on here in the text is that Jesus perhaps is sensing that his popularity might be getting in the way of people understanding what it means to follow him. It's like when he sees the crowd, suddenly Jesus is skeptical. And that's because having a lot of folks around us doesn't necessarily mean they're really connecting with what our message really is. I mean, modern evangelicalism seems enamored with crowds. 
I, I circulate a lot with pastors and uh, church leaders. And if you go to a convention where there's lots of church pastors and leaders, if you're in conversations with people uh, that are pastors or church leaders, it's usually not very long before someone in the circle says to someone else, how big is your church? It's like numbers have a way of validating the legitimacy of churches and pastors and even Christianity in general. We have a tendency to get just a little too excited about numbers. You remember over in Matthew 9, you can just turn the page over in verse 36. You remember when it's in that passage, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So compassionate toward the crowds? Yes, Enamored in some way as legitimizing his claim to be Messiah? Not at all. In fact, the crowds that followed Jesus were more like a mission field to Jesus than they were anything else. I'm simply saying that the crowd itself is not the right measurement of assessing whether or not you've got real discipleship going on. Movie stars attract crowds. Sporting events attract crowds. Spectacles attract crowds. And even some ministries and churches attract crowds. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. We fish when the crowds show up. But that's really what the crowd is about. Now, people are attracted to what is popular oftentimes. And if you notice this, I've noticed this. When it comes to things like protests or political rallies, a lot of times the people in the crowd are people that are not necessarily aligned with the purpose or the person or the protest. They're just in the crowd. So when it comes to assessing, listen, when it comes to assessing whether we've truly calculated the cost, here's the question I want you to write down or the statement I want you to write down. Disciples follow Jesus, not the crowd. So I guess the first question comes down to this. Are you really a follower of Jesus? I mean, here's an interesting reality. We have a crowd here today. Have you noticed? Some of you are hoping for the good parking spot when you got here. I'm not necessarily when you arrive because it's pretty good at the first service. You are talking about the parking spot that will get you out of here the quickest. Now listen, there's a lot of people here today, and I'm glad you're here. Would we want to see more people here? Absolutely. But should I assume that because we have a crowd here today that we're looking to, and I'm speaking to everyone who is a true disciple, a a follower of Jesus Christ, a true disciple of his? I mean, is it our compelling motivation to be here today because of Jesus? Or is there an underlining, tangential reason what really brings us here today? I can think of many reasons why some people come to places like this church and other churches that have lots of people. Some people like the kind of people that are in the church. Just positive people. I love coming here, someone may say, because I just get such a good feeling when I'm here. People are so positive and so encouraging. It's just a great place to come and meet with positive good people. I'm with negative people all during the week, and it's just great to come when I can be around positive people. Other people are a little bit more visceral in their desire to be here. The donuts are an attraction. (laughs) Oh, the donuts. Or what a cool coffee shop. Did you know that that church has a coffee shop? 
I mean, it is so cool to come up here and roll in and get the best coffee in the area and sit down and enjoy a great cup of coffee and just have some friends around. That's great. The music. Have you been to that church on the hill where the three crosses are? I've heard someone say this. It's like a concert every time you come to a service there. A concert. Some people love the music. Different styles of music. Love orchestra. Love worship teams and bands. Oh, the music is so amazing. It makes me feel so good. Listen, none of these things are inherently wrong. But I would suggest to you that all of those things, some are are often the things that are the underlying desire of our hearts to come to a place like this. But listen, what brings us to a place like this ought to be, must be, if we're truly disciples of Jesus, is to not just be in the crowd showing up for something that might make us feel better, but we are here because we want to meet with Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Jesus resides in this building? No. But there's something beautiful when his church gathers. Or Jesus promises that, we, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And when we take of the bread and the cup, and when we gather and we give praise to him, he fills this place. Some of us wonder sometimes why when we're singing a worship song, suddenly we can't hold back the tears. Or there's something going on inside of our heart where God is sort of lancing us and causing us to see a need for a closer walk with Him, something to leave in our life or something to go to in our lives. And we're having a hard time understanding that. And we sometimes forget that that's actually Jesus speaking into our lives. And He wants to meet us today. And if you come for whatever other reason or if you're just on automatic pilot and because it's Sunday morning and it's 8 45 or 9 o'clock and you need to be here in this service and that's why you're here. Let me remind you that true disciples follow Jesus. What, what that means to me, I don't know what that means necessarily to you, but what that means to me are things like intimacy and relationship and pursuit and joy and fulfillment and abundance and security. Those are just some of the words that come to my mind when I think about why I want to be here. Why I want to be with God's people if I'm not here. If you don't see me on a Sunday morning here, it's likely that I'm visiting another community of faith somewhere in our community. Just because I don't get the privilege to do that at times. But, and if I'm vacationing with my family, it's a really high probability, unless we're somewhere just really far away from where God's people are, that we're going to be in a worship service somewhere because we just want to be with Jesus in the context of worshiping with his people. But many of us don't really think that way. We're here today for other reasons. We want to connect with a friend. It's a, it's a nice place. It's a great environment. Man, when it's a really hot weekend, this is a really cool place to be. Well, I'm being a little facetious, but I'm wanting to remind everyone that this was the clarion call. This was the brand uh, invitation of Jesus all through the Gospels. What does he say? Follow me. We read that over in chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We read it in Matthew 16, 24, where he says, uh, anyone come after me, he was, he was deny himself and take up his cross. In 1921, where Jesus tells the rich young ruler that leave all your riches, go sell all your riches, give to the poor, and then you come and follow me. It is the brand invitation he gave, and we forget that that's an invitation to a person, not to a creed, not to a way of life, 
but to Jesus himself. And I'm asking you the question this morning, are you connected to him? Is he your heart's passion? Is he your pursuit? Is he what you adore over everything else in your life? Because the reality is when we adore anything other than or more than Jesus, that's what occupies our hearts. That's what occupies our minds. That's what we worry about, what we fret about. That's what gives us anxiety. And only until Jesus becomes prominent, that he is the one that we adore, that he is the above all everything else in our lives, that we want him more than anything, do all those other things take their rightful place. We are not riddled with anxiety. We are not riddled with worry and concern because he is our number one. He fulfills everything. It's a relationship. So that's the first part of this assessment. The second clarifying question I think is found here in verses 19 and 20, and that's where our assessment includes the question of where we go where we go. Now, now here this guy runs up to Jesus and he says to him, and this is a teacher of the law, he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The present tense verb translates literally, I will follow you wherever you are going right now. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like a guy that you would want on your team. Some commentators rightly point out that the way rabbis formed their discipleship groups, this man would have been a likely candidate. He was a teacher of the law. So for Jesus, think about this, someone coming out of that crowd of people that were anti, that were opposing Jesus most often, he was also a learned man, he was a scholar in the scriptures, and for a guy like him to join the discipleship, think about the disciples, they were fishermen, they were common guys, they were blue collar, you can only imagine that this would have ratcheted up sort of the legitimacy of Jesus. Do you know who Jesus has on his team? And we think a lot about teams and who's got who on, on a team. And when a great name comes over to a team, it's like, oh, man, we've got so-and-so on our team. I can only help but to think that the disciples, they watch this guy come out of the shadows. Jesus, I'll go with you wherever you're going right now. Take me with you. And Jesus replies in such a, a cryptic, almost a stand-back, not-so-fast, buddy kind of response. I mean, man, if this guy were to become a follower of Jesus, what a difference it might make. I mean, we make those same assumptions, don't we? We look at people in our lives or people in the public eye and we think, wow, if that guy or gal would profess Jesus, if that guy or gal would come to our church, what a difference it would make. I mean, could you believe it if we got that guy, that gal? We think in terms like that. That person would make such an amazing Christian. And we sort of glamorize people in such a way that if they were to come over to our side somehow, oh man, Christianity would be so legitimate. (laughs) We forget Jesus makes Christianity legitimate, okay? And he uses the rabble. He uses people we wouldn't expect. He uses people like you and me. Come on, God must have a sense of humor in there, right? That, That we would be the signpost, People that bring nothing to the table. People that have no recognition, no notoriety whatsoever. And yet he, he calls us into mission. Jesus is saying to this guy, look what he says. His foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying to this guy? He's saying that disciples, watch this, disciples are not just eager to be with him. They embrace his mission. I want you to write that down. They embrace his mission. 
I mean, do you embrace Jesus' mission? I mean, some have rightly pointed out that embedded in Jesus' response to this man is the cold realities and uncertainties of what may lie in wait for him if he follows Jesus. Jesus had no earthly home. He had no earthly wealth. Jesus essentially is saying that if you follow me, you are likely at times to have nothing but me. Are you going to be okay with that? Now, now <laughs> I'm glad someone is excited about that. <laughs> you, might have not a, you might not have a place to live. You might not have clothes to wear. You might not have a job. You might even lose your life because you follow Jesus. You're likely to go into places and situations that might be way out of your comfort zone. And you say, now wait a minute, I don't know if I'm, I wanna be a follower of Jesus then. Good, because Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, you have gotta be more than just eager to be with me. You have to embrace my mission. What's his mission? His mission is to make disciples all over the world. His mission is to lay down our lives so that people would see him. His mission is so that he would be glorified and seen in all things. You see, Jesus isn't looking to win a popularity contest. He's on a mission and he's calling his followers to join him wherever he goes into that mission with undistracted devotion. I'm amazed on how many people say that they are followers of Jesus but never join him in any part of his mission. And I'm not talking about going around the world. I'm talking about going across the street, going across the hall at work. When was the last time we opened our mouth and shared what Jesus has done in our lives with somebody who needed to hear that? If you can't even think of a time, can I just suggest to you, you might not be on mission. Now, I'm not trying to build some big guilt trip in anybody's mind here because we all have challenges in front of us and every week I've got times where I have slipped by an opportunity, so have you. I'm not trying to shake my finger at anybody. I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to you. But I'm reminded every day that if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm on mission with Jesus. And that means I will lay down my life. I will die to myself. I will be reminded that when people ask of me things that are a little outside of my comfort zone, if I believe it's Jesus saying to me to do it, then I'm going to lay down my comfort zone. I'm going to pick up what he wants me to do. That's why Jesus said, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself daily, picking up his cross and follow me. And Jesus is describing what our mission really is. And we are likely, if we do that, to experience hardship, adversity, attack, and a lot of other messy things. We follow Jesus into places that will cost us things that we didn't necessarily expect. But in the end, even if it all is gone, we still have Jesus. Still have Jesus. You know, this morning, riding up here, I just, uh, there was a little flashback as I was thinking through the sermon that's, I don't know, eight years ago or so when I was on my sabbatical and I had a couple months off to just kind of think and pray, I spent a, a weekend in a little cabin in the, in the forest, a little forest of, of uh, Illinois. 
And there was a, a place there that a pastor friend of mine had kind of hooked me up with saying that if you go, they, they take pastors and it sounds like a pastoral retreat center and, and there's these little tiny, you know, kind of bungalow cabins and, and it's just for you to be alone and it was a beautiful, beautiful time. I don't think I even described or told anything about it. But in that cabin, which was this beautiful cabin, I read about uh, a person whose life uh, had been dedicated to Christ and, and I thought this was so uncanny that the Lord brought this to my mind because he was an engineer who was sent out by his church. I think it was the Lutheran church, and it might even have been like EMI, I don't know. But he was sent out from his church before he had just finished uh, architectural uh, engineering school at his university. And before he went into the secular work, he wanted to give a few years of time to serving on the mission field. So he went with this group of engineers and structural architects, uh, architects to a place, and it was somewhere in Africa. And he was serving there. And I'm reading the story. As he was serving there, there became a political unrest. It began to be a little dangerous. And he wrote down in his journal every night about so the pressures that were there, but how grateful he was to serve a people who, and, and they were building a, a church, actually, for this people group that needed a church. And he was involved in all this. And then as at the end, I'm reading the story, and then I'd come to find out this guy was martyred. He was killed. A bunch of people rolled into the village and killed him. And so this little cabin that I was staying in was dedicated to his life. And I just, I took all that in. It was just so powerful to me. And I thought, Holy Spirit, thank you for reminding me of that story this morning with the Crawfords being here. Did he know that that's where that journey would take him? He didn't. But you know, he was satisfied knowing that he was right where God wanted him to be. He was on mission with Christ. And if everything else goes, including his life, he still has Jesus Are we on mission with Jesus this morning? Think about the places he's going to call us into. And let's think about some scriptures. Let me just give these to you. I think they're familiar if you want to write them down. I'm not sure if they're in your notes or not. But Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, quickly. Romans 8, 35 through 39. You can turn there if you want to really quickly. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul writes, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake... And I've written in brackets, because we follow you into your mission, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You think Paul understood that when he was writing Romans 8? I think so. The disciples followed Jesus into his mission, knowing that it may cost them everything. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 13, he writes, verse 3, he says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, and I've written in brackets, those who join his mission, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. We, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, 
Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10. Now that's, that's you read that and you say, well, wait a minute. Some of us are tempted to go, yeah, that's for guys like in the first century. Those are the, that's apostles. No, this is the word of God for anyone who says they're a follower of Jesus. If you're following Jesus, then you're identifying with his mission. And there's one more thing I have to show you here. Jesus says, the foxes have, uh, have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Son of Man. And Jesus uses this designation in the Gospels of himself more than any other designation, Son of Man. And many of us have assumed that what Jesus means when he says that primarily is that he's identifying with our humanity because he is the God-man, right? So if that's the case... Jesus is just basically saying here, look, if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me into places where it's going to be really hard to live. And believe me, I know that because I'm also human. Now, I would agree that that's a rendering. That's, a, that's certainly a part of what Jesus is saying. But I think there's so much more. Because Matthew's intent, remember I said Matthew's intent is to legitimize the claim that Jesus is Messiah. The term son of man, if you were a Jew, you knew exactly where that term came from. It comes from the prophecies of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, in particular, we learn of, as Daniel prescribed and described the ascending glory of the Son of God as he re-enters the glories of heaven, listen, Daniel seven thirteen and 14, we'll put it on the screen for you. Daniel writes, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and, many, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, don't miss what's happening here. You know what Jesus is saying to this man? He's saying, look, you need to understand that something about what it means to follow me. If my dominion will never end, if I have the glory that is shared with the Father in heaven, yet my mission is to give my life as a ransom, to serve and not be served, and to go to death, how will your mission be any different than mine? He says, you, you are entering into a place where your stature has now crumbled because you have nothing to offer. You take all your credentials, you wrinkle them up, and you throw them in the garbage can because as a follower of Jesus, your credentials don't ride you through. If Jesus' own credentials didn't send him through unscathed in this world, why should we expect ours to? One commentator, Mike Napa, in his commentary says it this way, instead of welcoming the star disciple into his fold, Jesus redefined discipleship for him. There would be no prestige or perks waiting for him as a follower of Jesus. Rather, he would have to give up his place of honor among the religious establishment. 
He'd be expected to endure sacrifice, hardship, and a deliberate abandonment of the demand for basic human necessities such as home and hearth. He was going to be all in or nothing, just the way Jesus lived it and also the way he intended it to be. Think of the writers of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, speaking of the followers. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Is your assessment of following Jesus like that? I don't, I don't think modern Christianity has it. It's not, that, it's not that, the, that we've missed the fine print. We've missed the bold print. It's everywhere. Jesus says, if you follow me, you're following me into death. Are you ready to do that? Now, I realize next week we're going to have half the people here that we have here today. <laughs> Good. If that's what it means. I'm just saying that we have missed the message. Many of us have. We declare the word of God as clearly as we can, and here we find something so powerful. If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I'm following him, not the crowd. I am identifying with his mission, not just wanting to be, or not just having eagerness to follow. Number three, quickly, verses 21 and 22, our assessment also includes the question of what we leave behind. What we leave behind. So here we read of another disciple. The word another here in the Greek language, heteros, there's two words primarily used in the Greek language to describe another. One is alos, which means another of the same kind. This is another of a different kind. We really don't know what this means. Was he, uh, was he something other than just a, a, a learner? Because the word disciple just means learner, follower. But another, another of a different kind of follower came to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, what, what appears here is interesting because as we read this, we think, well, wait a minute, this, this doesn't seem like Jesus is showing much compassion here. I mean, wouldn't Jesus have said, oh my goodness, your father has died? Go, go, go. In Jewish culture, it was paramount that the, especially the oldest of the family was responsible for a parent's burial at death. And it would have been tantamount to scandal to be a Jewish person in this culture and not intend or not superintend the activities around a parent's, a parent's death. Uh, many believe that what Jesus is getting at and seeing through this man's argument is there's something going on, something like this. This man is saying, look, Jesus, I, I, would, I would love to follow you and I'm committed to following you, but perhaps my father is close to being dead, close to dying, and, and I need to be available if he dies, I need to be around. Now, viewed from this perspective, Jesus' response is not without compassion, but simply underscores the gospel's urgency. Jesus is basically saying to this person that the gospel requires urgent and absolute response. I mean, what, what this comes down to is, is, is most of us thinking that the gospel is about convenience. And I want you to write this down. Disciples realize that following Jesus is absolute and immediate, not based on convenience. I mean, so many people put off following Jesus. I meet people like this all the time. And I've had, I've had someone tell me this, and I've remembered it because it kind of, it hit me in a, they said, when I get old like you, I'll follow Jesus too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm old. I know it. 
But you know, that's, that's a cryptic remark that maybe just somebody threw out, some, some young person that wanted to kind of blow me off with something. But I, we're all filled with excuses. There'll be a better season down the road in my life. When I get out of college, when I finally settle down, we start having a family. I'm going to really follow Jesus then. Right now, I'm too busy. I've got a career to build. I'm trying to get my family organized. Maybe when my life is in crisis. Right now, things are smooth. They're flowing along. But I know where I'm going to go if I get in crisis. We're always putting off, putting off, putting off, putting off, putting off. And Jesus called the person who put off the most important thing in their life a fool. For tonight, some of our souls will be required of us. We walk out our doors every day and we live our lives and as if we are the masters of our destiny, as if we know exactly where all this is going to end and we don't. And we're playing with fire oftentimes. And I realize that salvation is a sovereign work of God and he works on our hearts and he brings as many as he will. But I'm just reminded as I look at this story today that many of us are repeatedly giving excuses to God. And maybe that's you. You're not a disciple if you're only following because it's convenient to follow him. Now, the funny thing about this text, and we need to wrap this up, is that we don't have any clue whether or not these guys actually followed Jesus. Matthew doesn't give us any sense. What do you think? Did they leave? Were they like the rich young ruler who hung their head and said, ah, and left? Or did they recognize the crisis of discipleship and actually start following I love the fact that Matthew keeps it open-ended because every one of us have a story too. And what is determined in that story will be what we do right now and what we do tomorrow morning, what we do later this afternoon, what we do this week with our lives, with our schedule, and with who we are. The cost of discipleship is not following the crowd, but it's following Jesus. It's not just being eager to be around Jesus, it's identifying with his mission. And finally and ultimately, it's not putting off what you can do right now. Let's go to the Lord.